wow, facing the giant of pride. Have you ever wondered if you uh, have a struggle with pride at all, and if a sermon like this is even uh, relevant for you? John Maxwell, the respected leadership guru, says, there are two kinds of pride, both good and bad. Good pride, he says, represents our dignity and self-respect. Bad pride, Maxwell writes, is the deadly sin of superiority that reeks of conceit and arrogance. And the Bible makes it clear that God hates that second kind of pride. Now, some of you may go, well, Pastor Rex really hates? That's a pretty strong word. Is that what it says? Proverbs chapter 6 says there are six things God hates, seven that are detestable to God. And at the very top of the list is haughty eyes or a haughty look. It means a prideful spirit. Now, on down that list, as you read down, is things like murder and lying, things like people who, who spread mischief and separate brothers and sisters and so on. But at the very top of the list, God says, I hate pride. This past week, one of our beloved uh, staff members, Mary Jane Coetzee, her, her mom passed away. Mary Jane's brother, Rick, is also in the church. And so a number of us who work for particularly our group we call Central Support that tries to support all of our congregations, all of our locations, we just kind of got together and said, let's go over to the funeral home and just share our prayers and our love and our condolences with this amazing, amazing family because a number of the family members are also in the church and I've known and, and appreciated this family for many years. So we went over and, and greeted Mary Jane and Rick and all the other family members there. And, and as I was going through the line, just greeting all the family members, right toward the end, just spontaneously, I just was talking to Rick, whose, whose mom had just passed away after a courageous battle with cancer. And I just kind of leaned in and just said, Rick, I hate cancer. I just hate it. It just, it just destroys so many people. We were both kind of teared up, and he nodded, and I said, you know, there's some things it's okay to hate. And if you love someone with cancer, it's hard to love them without hating the cancer that's destroying them. And the Bible says God hates pride. He hates what it does. Proverbs 16 says, pride goes before destruction. And it's pride that destroys so much in our lives. It destroys relationships. It destroys our relationship with God and with one another. God hates pride because it's a cancer that destroys. He takes it very, very seriously. And so some of you are going, all right, I get it. God doesn't like this. In fact, the Bible even says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
and you're going, yep, I, I agree with you, Pastor. It's bad, and my sister really needs to hear this message. I, I want to tell you, I am, I am loaded and ready. Bring it on. Or my father-in-law, I'll tell you, if anybody needs this message, it's my father-in-law. That's one proud man right there. He never apologizes to anybody about anything. C.S. Lewis writes, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, a vice which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else and which there are hardly any people who ever imagine they are guilty of it themselves. That is pride. And so since this is such an insidious, such a difficult giant to kind of nail down, I think we should begin by looking at some of the symptoms of pride. And I just want to mention a few, you might want to jot some of these down, that are indications that pride might be (coughs) present in your own life. One thing I would mention is that pride tends to make us stubborn and defensive. And so when my wife Debbie says, um, Rex, I could really use some help cleaning the house today, I, I, I may be heard to say, well, what, what does that mean? I mean, I, I help a lot. I, 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 I do a lot of housework. You know, I, I honestly probably wash more dishes than you. That would be pride that would say that. Pride is what makes the wife say, not say, let's do it your way. Pride is what keeps the daughter from saying, I was wrong. Pride is what keeps the employee from saying, I dropped the ball there. I'm sorry. I blew that one. And pride is what keeps the husband from saying, you know what? You're right. We're absolutely lost. I have no idea where we are. Let's pull in here and ask directions. Pride keeps you from doing that. Secondly, uh, pride can make you argumentative. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 10 says, pride only breeds quarrels. Whenever I'm around a person who, you know, just their nature is to be quarrelsome and argumentative, I know one thing, here's a person with a good deal of pride. Humble people don't need to be Quarrelsome. They don't need to always be trying to prove their point about things. I find it interesting that in the Bible, <clears throat> when God is giving us through uh, the apostles what the requirements are for leaders in a church, one of the things that appear in both of the classic lists for elders, both in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and First uh, Timothy chapter three, verses one through seven, when God says, here are the kind of people you want as your leaders, in both of those lists, he says, you need people who are not argumentative. They're not pugnacious, is the word. They're not quick to want to get into an argument or into a fight. Are you argumentative? It may be an indication that there's a giant of pride that is plaguing you. Third, pride can tend to make us really critical. You're quick to tell people what they're doing wrong because it never occurs to you that your way might not be the best way. I don't know for sure. But I'll bet I'm talking to some daughters-in-law today that are deeply wounded because 
your mother or father-in-law has critiqued your parenting and it's really cut deep. That criticism has just laid you low, cut you to the heart. I'll bet, I'll bet I'm talking to some elderly people today who have been critiqued by younger people because you're just, as they say, fuddy-duddy. You're stuck in your ways, and they critique the way you dress. They critique the way you talk. They critique the way you don't use technology as much as they do. And, and there's just this critical spirit that abounds. I'll bet I'm talking to some wives today who are exhausted. You're exhausted because you've been living for years in this marriage where your husband just keeps on with this critical spirit. He just never can please him. And I'll bet I'm talking to a few husbands today who've tried to make steps toward becoming more spiritual and being a better man and, and getting closer to God. And it, your wife has wanted you to do that and encouraged you to do that. But it seems that if you just make one misstep, boy, she's quick to criticize. Criticism is devastating to relationships. And can I tell you something, folks? As I've observed churches now for literally decades, I know I don't look nearly that old, but believe me, I am. As I've observed churches for decades, can I tell you something I've observed? Criticism devastates churches too. When people ask me, what is the secret to Grace Fellowship? Obviously, the secret is God Almighty building a church. He's the secret to all this. He's the key. But when I start talking about the people that God uses, you know what I often say? One of the keys, I believe, to this amazing church God is building is that there's some older people at this church who are very humble. You know what I mean by that? They're so humble they're willing to not insist on their preferences, even though they're probably paying most of the bills. There's some older people in this church who don't necessarily like the music, but you know what? They don't get critical about it because they realize it's gonna reach their grandchildren. And so they go right on with a sweet, humble spirit, and they refuse to allow a critical spirit to develop. Beware of criticism because it's often rooted in a heart of pride. Another thing I notice about pride is it tends to make us ungrateful. In other words, it tends to make me believe that I really honestly deserve <clears throat> all the good things in life that I've received. A journalist by the name of James Glassman says, quote, we live in a culture of complaint. We're always expecting more. We think we deserve what's good, and if we don't get it, we whine about it, we complain about it. We have this sense of entitlement, and all of that is rooted, of course, in pride. And, and I'll mention a couple more quickly. Pride tends to make us hyper-competitive. We tend to get a sense of perverse delight when we discover that one of our nemesises in high school is really struggling financially, we think, yeah, he had it coming to him. I'm doing better than that. Or when uh, we find out that somebody in our small group is really kind of discouraged about their parenting or struggling in their marriage, we actually kind of encourages us because we think, well, yeah, 
I'm better. I'm doing better than they are. We feel this competitive thing in life and we go through life competing and comparing. It's pride that keeps me from rejoicing with a dear friend who's building a dream home that I wish were my dream home. Because honestly, I'm just kind of jealous because I'm in this competing and comparison mode and my home is not as spectacular as that. It's pride that keeps me from being happy for a coworker who gets a promotion, a promotion that I really wanted. And I'll mention one other thing. Pride, frankly, makes me vain. Somebody said, vanity is the inability to walk by any shiny object without checking myself out in it and seeing how I look. That kind of vanity means I can't go out anywhere in public without being totally made up without looking my best at every single moment. Now, there are a lot of other symptoms we could talk about. Pride can make me prejudiced and intolerant of others that are different than me. Pride can make me overly concerned with what other people think. The list just goes on and on and on. But here's the question I want to ask today. Are any of those things true of you? Because, boy, I know they're true of me. And so if you find one or more of those things true of you, then maybe, maybe together we can learn something about conquering this giant of pride today. So the next question I want to ask is, is there anybody who successfully conquered this issue in their life besides our Lord Jesus Christ? And I believe there is a great example of humility we can look to in the Bible. Now, no one was perfect but I want you to listen to what Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, describes about Moses. Listen to this statement, Numbers 12, verse 3. Now, Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now, some have pointed out that the problem with that amazing description is that it it is found in a book whose authorship is attributed to Moses. So maybe he wasn't so humble after all. But I would say to you that I think someone else wrote this of him. I do believe in the Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. But it's also clear to me that someone else wrote, perhaps Joshua or someone else, wrote certain parts of the Pentateuch. Obviously, Moses' death experience was written by Joshua or someone else and numerous other parts of the Pentateuch. So I do believe that Moses is an amazing example of humility, although I think he struggled with pride throughout many seasons of his life. So let's spend a a few minutes together kind of looking at his life and seeing what lessons we can learn about conquering the, the giant of pride. First of all, let's look at his example here together. Now, for those of you who may not remember or know the story, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with it, Moses' story is fascinating. He grew up in a time when the Hebrew people were in bondage to the Egyptian people. They were literally slaves to the Egyptians, and they were used as slave labor to build pyramids and all kinds of other buildings and statues, etc. And at one point in this journey, the Pharaoh said, 
I want all the male babies that are born, all the Hebrew male babies to be killed. Basically a sort of very late term partial birth abortion was to be practiced. So Moses' mother put him in a little basket when he was born and floated him down the Nile River. Fascinating story. Pharaoh's daughter found Moses in that little basket and she fell in love with that Hebrew child and she raised him. So Moses was raised in the palaces of the the Pharaoh. He received, according to Acts 7, he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. So he grew up wealthy. He grew up with advantages. He grew up, as we would say today, on the right side of the tracks. He grew up handsome. He was a beautiful child. He grew up to be a handsome man. Josephus, the ancient historian, says that he was so striking in his features that oftentimes the Egyptians would just try to get a glimpse of what he looked like. He was a natural leader. So here he is, and as he's growing up, he realizes, I'm not Egyptian. I'm a Hebrew. And one day, as he's discovered this new identity, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew slave. He intervenes. He kills the Egyptian taskmaster. Perhaps he's a very proud man at this point, thinking, I can do anything I want to do. Nothing I do goes badly. But Moses actually had to run for his life, and he ends up on the backside of the Midianite desert. He marries a woman named Zipporah, and he works for his father-in-law, a man named Jethro, doing perhaps the most humble job on the planet, shepherding sheep. So that's what Moses does, not for one year, not for two. He does that for decades. But I want you to notice now something that happens. Moses has gone from the palace to the backside of nowhere. Boy, has he been humbled. And God speaks to him there in this humble state, Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses said, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Moses was about to receive one of the grandest assignments in history to go and free the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. Moses had seen their abuse. Moses was aware of their mistreatment. And God was now sending him to be their human deliverer. And as he's talking to God here, look at what he says in verse 11. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Wow, what a change. Some decades earlier, Moses had impulsively killed an Egyptian in an attempt to avenge an Israelite slave. It was a brash move 
but now he's been a shepherd for decades. He's gone from being a general, according to Josephus, in the army of the Pharaoh to shepherding some sheep. What a humbling thing. And so his question is, God, who am I that I could do a thing like this? Now, brothers and sisters, I wanna suggest to you today that perhaps the most important character trait in a great leader is humility. Perhaps the most important trait, if you're asking God to use your life in a significant way, is the trait of humility. Because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Listen to these passages of scripture. Psalm 18, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. Proverbs 3, he mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. Isaiah 66, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. You know, it sure does help in life if we have a human example of humility. And I pray for you that there is a woman or man in your life that you can look to and go, now there is a humble person. There's a person that God has really used to encourage me. That person in my life that I've been able to watch his life for many years now is Billy Graham. In my opinion, one of the reasons that God used Billy Graham and other members of that team so profoundly is because they honestly, as you talk to them, they honestly are genuinely amazed, still amazed after all these years that God would use them to do something significant. And God delights in that kind of humility. So what about you? Are you kind of wondering if God could use your life? Or are you maybe sensing, like Moses did, perhaps not as dramatically as a burning bush, but you're having your own burning bush experience and you're going, God, could you really use me? The question we need to ask is, do we have that genuine humility? Because it seems to be the trait that God delights in the most. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He's chosen the lowly things of this world and the despised things. He's chosen all of these things to shame the wise so that no one can boast before him. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So here we are. We've seen some of the symptoms We've looked at Moses as an example of humility who, because he was finally an appropriate place of humility, God was ready to use him. But now I want us to spend the few minutes we have left talking about the remedy for conquering pride. Moses is now a shepherd of sheep. And as a result, he has discovered some things about himself which may, has made him more usable to God. And so as we go through these four things, they're not in your notes, but you might want to jot these points down as we go through them. I want you to ask yourself, is this true of me? I just want you to do your own diagnosis right where you are. 
And let's wrap up by talking about the remedy for conquering pride. I would suggest to you that the first ingredient for conquering pride is to have an accurate view of yourself. An accurate view of yourself. Romans 12, 3 reads, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. In other words, Paul says in Romans, have an accurate view of yourself. Now, I believe that that is often more difficult than it sounds. If somebody comes up to you out in the lobby after the service and says, wow, you look great today, what do you say? You kind of look down, kind of kick the floor, and go, well, not really, I'm not very attractive. Kind of dim in here. Lighting isn't very good. Or if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, you look great today. Do you see, I'm very excited about this news you're telling me. Let's go celebrate this good news together. Tell me more. Or if someone comes up and says, you know what, you look great today. You say, well, thank you very much. And just kind of go on. Here's my point. Humility is not thinking more lowly of yourself than you ought. In fact, as you read this story carefully of Moses' call, he starts giving all these objections to God why he can't do this great thing God wants him to do. He says, I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. I'm not this. I'm not that. And the Bible says in Exodus 4, God's anger burned against Moses. Why? Because he thought of himself more lowly than he ought. He was giving excuses why he couldn't do what God wanted him to do. Humility is not thinking more lowly of yourself. Humility begins by having an accurate view of who you are. You see, sometimes humility can just be insecurity in disguise. Secondly, I would say that the remedy for conquering pride is to have an accurate view of God. An accurate view of God. A proper perspective of yourself and then a proper view of God. Exodus 3, verse 12 reads, I will be with you. This is God speaking to Moses. I will be with you. You see, when Moses gave all these excuses why he couldn't do it, God doesn't come back to Moses and say, no, Moses, you're wrong. You are a good guy. You've got a nice personality. You are smart enough. You're good enough. People like you, Moses. You're pretty dynamic. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, no, Mo, you're wrong. You're adequate in and of yourself because that would have been wrong. What God says to Moses is, Mo, I will be with you. I made your tongue. I'm behind this. I'm in the boat with you, Moses. And so that's how we're gonna get it done. Moses basically didn't need more self-confidence. He needed some God confidence. And folks, I wanna tell you, there is a tremendous difference. God confidence is this humble awareness of God at work in your life. 
You want to defeat the giant of pride? Get an accurate view of yourself. Get an accurate view of God. But let's look now at the third lesson. If you're in your Bible there, go from Exodus 3, flip over to Exodus 18. Because as I study Moses' story, I see some change going on here in him as the years go on in leadership. And I think it often happens with many of us. Moses went from feeling inadequate to feeling super adequate. And in Exodus chapter 18, what we read here, the context of this is they've already gotten out of Egypt. Uh, life is going okay. The people are kind of high maintenance. You know, they're, they're, they've got a lot of needs and Moses is trying to meet those needs as a leader. But he's feeling overburdened. He's feeling stressed out. I think he's probably thinking if it weren't for me, these people wouldn't make it. They'd be toast. I'm indispensable to this operation. Well, remember his father-in-law Jethro? His father-in-law Jethro pays him a visit. And in Exodus 18, it reads like this, verse 14. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Jethro's saying, look, why are you doing it this way? Why are you doing it all by yourself? Now listen, Moses had a delegation problem. He really did. He wasn't trusting other people to carry out some of the responsibilities. And that is a symptom of pride. That is a symptom of pride. So what is he going to do about it? It must have been humbling, huh? It must have irked him. In fact, I believe that's why he seems to get a little defensive at first. He says, oh no, the people have all these needs and they need me and so they come to me and I settle these issues for them. But let's read on. Verse 19, Jethro says, listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. And Jethro goes on to give some very wise, logical, practical, helpful suggestions he basically lays out a leadership strategy for Moses of how he can delegate more effectively. And Moses was willing to listen to his advice. So my third suggestion to you, if you really wanna conquer the giant of pride, is to exhibit a willingness to listen and an openness to change a willingness to listen, and an openness to change. When someone comes to you and says, hey, you know what, I really care, but I've been noticing this about your situation, and they start trying to offer some kind, helpful input, how do you respond? Listen, the way you respond to input is one of the greatest indicators of the degree of pride in your life. You know, I mentioned Billy Graham before. One of the things I respect so much about him is although he has been on the top, the very top of the most respected men of, in, America, in America and around the world for decades now, everywhere he goes, one of the things he's known for is seeking people out and just asking questions. And if you ask him why, he'll say, because I wanna learn. 
when he would go into a city and for a series of evangelistic meetings, he would always go to the college campuses and he would sit down with students and ask questions and then just listen as they talked because he wanted to understand them. He wanted to understand their world. Are we willing to listen and are we open to change? Are we too proud and think we've got it all figured out? Well, there's one final lesson I want us to look at. If your Bible is open, you can flip over to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Some years have gone by. The people continue to kind of be a struggle for Moses. Leadership is hard, as everybody knows. They're kind of high maintenance here. They want something to drink. And God says to Moses, speak to this rock and water will miraculously come out of the rock. But that's not exactly the way Moses did it. I want you to look at what it says in Numbers 20, starting in verse 10. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? When Moses raised his arm, then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. God said, speak to the rock. Moses, in his frustration and anger and perhaps arrogance, begins to wail away at the rock instead of speak to it, contrary to God's command, and he strikes it twice. The water comes out, but God is very displeased. Now, some people read this and go, that was just flat-out disobedience. Yes, it was, but I'll tell you what I think it was more than anything. I think it was pride, and his pride comes through clearer than ever when he says to them, must we, must we bring you water out of this rock? Folks, can I tell you something? When you're linked up as a partner with God, it's never a we deal. God is the power behind it all. And the most we ever do is just cooperate. So here's the final lesson. If you wanna conquer the giant of pride, do not take credit for what God does. Do not take credit for what God does. And as Moses is giving final instructions to the people, and by the way, a part of the result of this act of Moses, this act of pride, is he doesn't get to enter the promised land with the people. And he says to them in some of his final words, as recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter eight, he says, look, folks, when you do get into this land, You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me, but remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your forefathers as it is today. And so through it all, Moses seems to have come full circle. And his final words are spot on a reminder that God is the giver of all good gifts. So let me ask you a question today as we close. 
Are there symptoms of pride lurking in your life? Boy, I sure have them. I am struck by the fact that God says, I resist the proud, but I'm just looking for that humble person because I want to give grace to the humble. Are you the kind of person that God can use? The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you at the proper time. The way up is down. Father, thank you for this powerful lesson, the life of Moses. And thank you that you've given us the strength to conquer the giant of pride. I know for many of us it's a besetting issue that will plague us most likely most of our days. God, I pray that we would learn to look to you to have an accurate view of ourself, an accurate view of who you are. God, I ask today that you would cause us to always give you the credit and never take the credit from you. As we go through our life, help us to be willing to listen to input and be open to change. And I pray most of all, oh God, that we'd be the kind of humble servants that you would be able to direct And when you say, go here, we would say, yes, Lord, your servant is here and I'm ready to do what you say. This is our prayer, oh God, in Jesus' name, amen.